What would happen if, as a community, we decided to have an open and honest conversation about how childhood trauma, particularly sexual trauma that happens to kids, how that affects the mental health of adults? It's uncomfortable to talk about. Of course it is. But problems don't get solved if we don't talk about problems. So it's probably time we started talking about these problems. My guest this week on the podcast is Emma Jane. She is an author and an associate professor at UNSW. She specializes in gender, misogyny on the internet, the future of work, the social and ethical impacts of technology, and she's a prolific author. Her latest book, Diagnosis Normal, addresses the complicated combination of autism, mental illness, and childhood sexual abuse. But ultimately, it's a story about a person who, despite all of that, is still someone who has an incredible life, an incredible family, and an incredible career. It's a great conversation, and uh, I can't wait to get into it. Before we do, uh, we do need to pay the piper, and that means uh, playing some ads. And here on the show, we do offer an ad-free version of the show. However, uh, you can find that over at Patreon. I'll tell you more about that as we go. But between now and when you decide to become a Patreon patron, is that how it is? <laughs> Here's some commercials, and we will be right back with Emma Jane. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment. You can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I identify as a sweet weirdo and I have for some time now. Like I like, I've run with being weird and nuts. I think it's important to, to speak openly and to, to kind of, I want, it's, absolutely not role modeling but to model what it looks like to to have a mental illness and be responsible and to still um, be able to flourish and thrive as a human taking responsibility to the as much as I can um, not being reckless when I know what things tend to tip me you know over the edge or make me get really wobbly I'm a responsible mentally ill person and also partly because of all of that work I do, I a lot of the time I'm really thriving. 
That was Associate Professor at UNSW, Emma Jane. I'm Osha Ginsberg, and this is Better Than Yesterday. G'day. Welcome to Better Than Yesterday. Thanks for being a part of the show. This is a tri-weekly podcast that is just here to make your day-to-day better than yesterday. That's it. Something you hear on this show and every show will do just that. Help you make your day better than yesterday. We do that by having conversations with people from all over the world, from all walks of life, and some of them are experts in their field. And each each chat will leave you with something that I guess you'll adjust a little the way you think about something or go about something and you'll lie in bed tonight and go, yeah, today was better. I've been here since 2013 and every conversation does that and I'm proud to make this show because uh, it's it's nice to do something that does what it says on the box. I am uh, Osher Ginsberg. I'm a TV host. I'm an author. I'm a podcaster. I'm a dad. I'm a stepdad. I'm someone who went to audio school a long, long time ago and that has provided me uh, the ability, I guess, to work remotely before working remotely was a thing. I re- recall making an episode of Take 40 Australia hiding in a cupboard in a castle in Scotland. But that's because I went to audio school and I knew how to make a, a microphone not sound echoey. I couldn't make myself not sound drunk, but that's a whole other story for another time. It was after a wedding. Good Lord. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. Anyway. I'm really grateful uh, to be here and uh, and make this show. I'm here three times a week, Mondays and Wednesdays. I'm here with a guest and Fridays I'm here with you. You can uh, support the show by sharing it with a mate, uh, liking and subscribing and rating wherever you can. Give us a five-star review. That really helps. Really helps. Uh, but also you can support us on Patreon. There's an ad-free version of the show. I'll tell you more about that later on. You can always email me too. Send Osher email at gmail.com. So let me tell you about my guest today. Emma Jane is an associate professor at UNSW. Her work specializes in gender, misogyny, misogyny on the internet, particularly the future of work, the future of uh, social and ethical impacts of emerging technologies on our society. And uh, she's presented her findings to the Australian Human Rights Commission, the Australian government's workplace gender equality agency, and the Festival of Dangerous Ideas at the Sydney Opera House. She's a prolific author. And her latest book is Diagnosis Normal. It's a candid, first-hand account of the complex combination of autism, mental illness, and childhood sexual abuse and how those things combine um, to affect and shape the life of an adult, how it created the person that she is, and ultimately how it implores the ultimately how some of these things impact other people who have experienced similar things in our community. And critically, by breaking the toxic silence around sexual violence and mental illness, Emma Jane really raises the possibility of not just surviving these things, but also thriving with these things. As she writes in her book, uh, we need to speak unspeakable things. We need more unpretty stories. And and we do cover this in in our chat, that the unspeakable thing is that for example, when I was a kid, the stranger danger we were warned about was, uh, you know, a man in a van and a trench coat waiting by the bus stop, but that wasn't it. That wasn't the person that was uh, abusing uh, children. 
certainly uh, kids that I knew um, that were getting abused. They were abused by teachers, by sports coaches, by family members, particularly family members. But that one's so uncomfortable, we don't like to talk about it. But it's the truth. Your child's more likely to get abused by someone you know than someone you don't know. Um, but we don't like to talk about that. But we fucking should. <laughs> it's an unpretty story. And we're really going to get into the weeds here, my friends, because uh, we can't have this conversation without talking about the tricky stuff. We're going to talk about suicide, childhood sexual abuse, suicidal ideation, self-harm, hospitalization, all kinds of tricky stuff. But it's important that we talk about these things because the more we talk about uncomfortable things, the more comfortable these things become to talk about. And then the more we talk about them, the more we're able to find possibility and pathways and solutions to these things. Because if we just pretend they don't exist, then the things just fester, don't they? You can find out more about Emma Jane at our website, emmajane.info. Enjoy this conversation with Emma Jane. I'm bloody grateful we could do this. Thank you so much for make the, making the time to come and speak with me um, today, Emma Jane. It's 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 wild, and I'm trying I'm trying to think. Like we were on television together in a former life, if I recall. Channel V. Yeah. I mean, having come from the you know the rock and roll industry, my memory is like a bit patchy in places. But yes, the the good old days of Channel V. Yeah. Look, I'm 12 years sober. Uh, Emma, Emma, so like I kind of know that like if you were in an Australian band around that era, you probably sat on our set and I probably interviewed you. <laughs> like, yeah, I, I, I'm, I feel like hundreds of years sober, um, but that period is still quite blurry for me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I you, you, you're actually sober because I'm, I'm like, you know, I, I count days and. I, I have steps in my life. There's more than 11 and less than 13. Mm. Uh. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, not, um, I'm not that kind of oh, okay. sober, but I just not into drinking. I'm not yeah. into altered state. I don't need any more altered states <laughs> than the ones that occur naturally. Thank you very much. Yeah, I, it took me a long time to figure that out. I was, uh, you know, I think when the first kind of t- tendrils of kind of uh, kind of quasi-psychosis starts showing up when I'm smoking hydroponic weed in South Australia. I'm like, I don't like this. No, I know. I think the secret is you just try to smoke more. That'll change it. Oh, yeah. That'll show those tendrils of quasi-psychosis a thing or two. No, actually. Yeah. It was fucking terrible. And uh, it took me a long time to figure that out. And I too came to the conclusion that, you know what? My brain does a pretty good job by itself. I might not need to have psilocybin. I'll be okay. You have fun with your ayahuasca there. Enjoy. Uh, But I'll be over here (laughs) dealing with what I'm dealing with. Quite uh, Quite the journey you've been on to end up... And as an associate professor from uh, someone who played in a, a fantastic pop rock and roll band. <laughs> yeah, imposter, imposter syndrome much. Like every day I turn up at work and it's like, oh, my God, people are taking me seriously. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm guessing when you were a kid, if you ended up playing in a, in a band, when you were a kid, it was music, music, music. Yeah, no, when I was a kid it was dentistry, dentistry, dentistry. What? Um yeah, I know. I think it was Stockholm Syndrome because I spent a lot of time in the dentist chair and so um, I was either 
when I grow up, I want to be a dentist or one of the countdown dancers. Right. Right. I, and I, I didn't have the perm for the countdown dancing gig. Oh, uh, for now, for people who are maybe younger than um, people who are maybe born after the year 2000, uh, Countdown. Well, people who were born, yeah, born after dinosaurs roamed the earth. Yeah, you count, know, Countdown was, was before YouTube, there was a TV show called Countdown, and it was the only way we could watch music videos. And uh, if we couldn't get the band or we didn't have a music video, they would just play the song, and then a troop of dancers would create a. Uh, a routine and dance, and that was a what they. Extravaganza and in lycra, and that's what they would play. I think famously, there's a the 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 Billy Jean. I think we didn't have a video for Billy Jean in Australia. They didn't release it here forever. And um, there's this fantastic '80s thing in front of the El Alamein Fountain in Kings Cross. These people doing this, music. It's great. But what a gig! And I'm sure if you're a countdown dancer, you only work once a week. So perhaps dentistry or dental assistantry was how you paid the bill. So they could have worked together. They could have dovetailed nicely. So you, you're, you're hooked into dentistry? Is that where you, you aimed? No, look, it, it, I didn't. Um, I really wanted to be a writer. Um, back then I played the clarinet, which is like one of the most daggy instruments in the known universe. Um, and so I didn't get into the whole guitar scene until my late teens. I sold my wooden clarinet and bought a Fender. There you go. Yeah. There you are. And away you went. You got in the van and... Um, and, and, and played some songs, that would have been fun. It was fun. Um, it was hard to play standing up at first. Um, <laughs> you know, like I did a lot of practice at home in my bedroom and the first time I stood up with an electric guitar, I was like, holy crap, this is strange. Um, and like all, you know, aspiring um, riot girls, I I played very poorly for a very long time, but the volume was always up to 11. Uh, yeah, and I think there's a certain, I always would tell, you know, when we did that Australian Idol show, the best singers weren't the ones that won. The ones that won were the ones who sold it, the ones who made everyone believe it. And that's why punk was so amazing because they guys they could not fucking play at all. But Christ, you but you that was the point, right? Yeah, that was the point that you couldn't fucking play at all. Yeah, one of my first um, live music group was an all girl band called Cleverly Enough All Girl Band. Excellent. And we we did um, covers of misogynist classics. Amazing. We we owned it, Um, and we were terrible. So hang on. So tell me when you saw when you when you went to get an all girl band click gig. So say for example, what is it? Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Sydney, yeah, Sydney, Sydney. Yeah. So you're in I don't know, like what Club Seventy Seven or something, or the Sand Sandown. Oh, we didn't quite get to Club Seventy Seven. I, you know, that was sort of RSL. All right. <laughs> Suburban RSL clubs. So when I showed up to a gig from all girl band, what kind? What do you open with? Well, give me head by the Radiators was a. Popular crowd favourite, um, My Sharona by the Knack of. Um, are you old enough? Oh my Fona? God. These, all these, you're saying all these songs, and I used to play some of them when I worked in radio. And as you're mentioning them now, I'm like, yeah, that, that hook, the Dragon song, Are You Old Enough? That was a pop, that was a charting song. That was top 10. I know, creepy, right? And I bet you weren't playing them ironically back then either, Osha. Oh, that's right. It's the Hunter Brothers and Dragon on B105. That's what I was doing. 
Yeah, so, oh, and a lot of Akadaka, obviously. At the least I'd like to think Akadaka owned it. Akadaka <laughs> did. I mean, I've still got a soft spot for Akadaka. Yeah. Um, but, you know, they weren't the most woke musical group lyrically, right? Let's let's be honest about it. No, I mean, I mean, look, you know, She's Got the Jack is probably, I don't know, it's, a, it's, a, it's an ode to a different time of sexual health, I think. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> penicillin could make everything go away. Was it an STI reference? You're today days old when you've discovered that the Jack was oh, Australian oh. Sa- Australian slang for the clap or gonorrhea. Wow. She's I got just, the Jack. No, I didn't know that. Yeah. Which, I've I've learned so much from you already, Osha. Which it's is just why in the second verse, Bond's like, well, I thought it was awesome, but it wasn't. <laughs> Okay. Uh, as soon as we finish chatting, I'm going back and I'm going to re-listen to the Jack and I'm going to finally get it. Yeah, it, that's right. It, I, I, it took me a long while to, to figure wow. it out. Wow. Yeah. But that's fine. It was. It, it's, it's amazing to think in our own lifetimes, these things have gone from, ah, no worries, to, ooh, cancel. Although the only thing weirder and sort of more disturbing than that is the fact that, you know, even with contemporary media and, you know, um, popular music lyrics, some of them are still really problematic. This is true. And then an artist such as Megan The Stallion comes on the scene and drops probably the most exciting song of the last five years, tragically at a time when no one could go to a nightclub and dance to it, which I'm sad for them. I'm sad that... You know, kids weren't able to get on the dance floor to wet ass pussy and just have the best time ever because <laughs> it dropped when there were no nightclubs open. Yeah. It's a fucking Look, great song. It is a fucking great song, although for me, being sort of um, on the on the autism spectrum, the idea of going to a nightclub and, you know, jumping around, that's my idea of a nightmare no matter yeah. how fucking good the song is. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm with you. I used that beer blanket to insulate me from that for a very long time and I don't I do not do that anymore. As, have you seen those, those ostrich pillows? That I have. You can buy those full head coverings that sort of just leave you a little breathing hole but yeah. basically give you a great big pillow for your whole head. Maybe that is what you and I, I know what we're going to do. We're going to call it going out on the spectrum. That's what we're going to call a product. And it's like an ostrich pillow. It's like a big soft helmet. So no bouncer's going to be upset. You're like, I'm st- it's still me. You can take it like, it's still me. I just need this so I can be in a crowd. And that way you don't get sweat or wet hair on your face. You know, when someone flicks their hair and you get other people's sweat on your cheek, yeah. you know, then you can go and enjoy a gig. And exactly, and it'll be a full body version too. I'm in. Because we don't want to be brushing up against anyone and, you know. Emma, I reckon. Possibly with one of those inbuilt space nappies so that we don't have to go and, like, deal with the nightmare of the public bathroom situation. Get Cannon Brooks on the phone. We're going to get the pitch deck by lunchtime and we'll, be, we'll yeah. launch by Tuesday. Can't wait. Which, we won't call it the ostrich pillow. We'll call it the osher pillow. <laughs> it's on. We're going to make it happen. You mentioned uh, the your spectrum diagnosis, which I'm I'm assuming is something you didn't know at the time when you were playing in bands and you were going out and you were being an all girl band. How old were you when you started to think maybe something's a bit different here? Um, I always knew something was really different, um, but. 
I explained it in, you know, different. I just thought, uh, you know, I was just a weirdo or just an asshole or like just difficult. Um, I didn't get formally diagnosed until, I don't know, early 2020. Oh, wow. Um, which is common. Girls, girls and women are often um, slip through the diagnosis net with autism. What does it present as? What do the symptoms present as? Because you're clearly trying to find solutions to why things weren't working. Oh, what did, how did my, mm. my symptoms present? Um, like what were doctors going, oh, no, it's this? So very sort of profoundly, rapidly antisocial, mm. um, really difficult at small talk. Uh, like I've struggled desperately with small talk, um, blurting out weird things that, you know, anything that crosses my mind, like it's out my mouth before I've done this sort of, let's um form that into something socially acceptable so i've always been in a lot of trouble at work and um you know for for sort of weird swearing <laughs> like not funny swearing like we're doing now right not funny swearing but weird swearing you know i remember when i first started work um at my university i was at a, a markers meeting and someone one of the other teachers was talking about something and i just blurted out oh you're a sensitive fucker aren't you and it was out and and you know i agree that it's not the uh, a particularly appropriate thing to say in that setting but the guy, you know, I guess quite rightly sort of made a complaint about me and, you know, I was sort of mildly disciplined. And at the time it was like, why, you know, why do I do this? Um, because I'm not a, I, don't, I still don't recall why I even said it or how it came out, but so a lot of incidents like that. And also, you know, autism is all about um, atypical sensory processing. So really struggling with not so much loud um, sounds, but if there's sounds of two different types at the same time, like if there's loud music but there's also someone talking <laughs> um, or loud music and also, you know, the sounds of drinks being poured at a bar, say, which means, again, those types of nightclub scenes are really not happy places for me. So what you just said about that workplace scenario, that sort of thing happened to me a lot when I first got blurted out into the kind of world of professionalness. And I, it was a lot of people taking me aside going, dude, you can't, you can't do that. You can't do that in a meeting. You can't do that. Um, and maybe because I was a man and because I had showed promise as a radio announcer, they gave me more slack, I think. Um, I had a lot of latitude and it took me a long time to figure out that that is not a good way to talk to people. <laughs> it made sense yeah, in my brain. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, it's not a good way to talk to people, but I'm ambivalent about um, diagnoses because I think it's easy to sort of uh, potentially make them your full identity. Mm. But what would have been helpful for me in terms of having an earlier diagnosis of autism is that I would have been like, oh, okay, that's just happened again. And perhaps in the moment, say, look, oh, God, dude, I'm so sorry about that. Yeah, I have a condition. But it would have made, I would have been easier on myself, I think, and potentially like no matter, I mean, that, that was an inappropriate thing to say and I'm, I obviously made that guy really uncomfortable, but, but to be continually disciplined through your professional life for that sort of thing um, and to feel really bad about it, like that takes a toll. 
and I guess you know the the your confidence in your ability to do work and your confidence in to expose yourself to new teams where new research and work opportunities could show up would start to um, have an effect. Let's just jump back for a second. How did the when did the uh, okay this playing in bands thing is over and mm, academia that looks interesting. How did that show um, up? Again, trying to sort of jumpstart my stuttering memory, but um, I did the band thing sort of for about a decade while also working in the media. And then I started um, studying at night partly because you could see that the the whole media industry was sort of starting to cough up blood. It was not looking, it was not looking good, but also I did get a lot of crap when I was working in the media. Like I just, again, different time, but I got a lot of shit um, for being stupid and being a bimbo and all this kind of stuff. And part of um, starting to study was a deliberate decision to take myself more seriously. Like I knew I couldn't make anyone else necessarily take me seriously, but I wanted to take myself more seriously. Um, And I also wanted to um, retrain you know, in case I didn't have a media job anymore. And as it happened, I just fucking loved studying. I loved it. I still love it. It is a great passion. It does not leave room for, you know, lugging huge amps to, you know, to studios to practice um, or perform music. So it was really when I realised how much I loved studying, it was like I have to do one or the other and I chose, you know, doing a master's, doing a PhD and going down that that um, avenue. So could we talk a little bit about your time in, in journalism? It was um, yeah. it was print journalism. Um, what was the, can you can you talk about the outlet? Can you talk about where this kind of stuff was happening? Yeah, I mean, it was mostly print, but it was also um, some TV and radio. Um, I started out as a cadet journalist on a small country newspaper where my main job was to put the dollar signs in fruit and vegetable reports um, and sub it at the Greyhound results. And eventually I got a gig at Sydney Morning Herald, spent seven years there, then spent I think nearly 12 years at The Australian um, doing sort of bits and pieces of TV and radio along the way. I'm I'm shocked that people called you bimbo um, and yet I'm not surprised. Was it really that bad? Was it really that kind of big dick swinging, we're off to lunch girly, that sort of thing? Absolutely. It was horrible. Like it was... I had, and it wasn't just the way that you got treated around the office. Like when I was at the Herald, a very senior, very uh, well-respected at the time journalist used to pull us aside, the women, the young women, and let us know which of our outfits he thought were the most flattering and would give us advice on, you know, perhaps don't wear that one again, love. Um, I liked it better when you wore this one or could you perhaps you know switch your shoes tomorrow because a bit of heel really doesn't go as straight as straight so there was that type of horrible around the office stuff but there was also and you know you'd know this from from being in the media is that when your colleagues or former colleagues have a bone to pick with you or don't you know don't like you that week um they can like let their views be known on the me- you know in the media and through the media and so when i moved from the 
Sydney Morning Herald to the Australian, people were writing dreadful things, like really very defamatory things um, that I, you know, would never have wanted to sort of go down that sort of lawsuit um, route, but absolutely astounding inferences around you know, the the thing that all women do when they get successful, which is to sleep their way to the top. So people were writing that, you know, people were ringing, journalists were ringing me and saying, this is, I'm not making this up. Within like 24 hours of me meeting with the um, News Limited people to switch from what was then Fairfax to um, News Limited, Within 24 hours, I hadn't signed a contract, hadn't spoken to any anyone, and a journalist rang me and said, I, we understand that you've on um, to get this job, you know. Like, is this is this what happened? It was like, whoa, dude, you know, he's, they've got like a um, no way you could on but the point being, there was just dreadful, that kind of dreadful shit, and it did not go away. Like it was really, it was ve- it was really a really horrible and oppressive, and um, yeah, I'm really glad to be away from it. Oh my goodness! And that was just, and I'm sure that would have been hopefully the dying days of that kind of behaviour. But I'm sure that kind of thing was just. Rife. I mean, I, early in this podcast, I had the extraordinary pleasure to interview Ida Buttrose and listening to her. And you know what? Even not just listening to her, seeing the look in her eye when I asked her a similar question, she, she kind of like had the, you know, if you ever meet a war vet from Afghanistan or Iraq, they kind of have this little thing in their eye that goes, and they see it all just kind of flash real quick. And then they go, yeah, yeah it was, yeah, it was, it was what you thought it was. <laughs> like a thousand yard stare yeah. of the journalism veteran. Yeah, and yet we are in this time now where we're recording this, crikey, five days before a federal election and I'm assuming either the people that uh, were doing this sort of stuff uh, in your workplace are either still involved in senior positions or people that worked under them and looked up to them and emulated their behaviour are now in positions. And as far as you're aware, has that culture continued or has that culture kind of tried to get stamped out? I don't. I haven't been inside the media culture for a long time. My gut feeling is that it's it's not going to be as bad as what it used to be. Um, in the same way as it wasn't as bad for me as it would have been for women, you know, twenty years before me. Um, but there's still enough casual, you know, sexism or just outright blatant misogyny uh, to to make me feel that that you know there's still a lot of work to be done and you know we've got the internet now like there's a whole new front for this kind of um gendered harassment and abuse now and it's also you know it can come anonymously and it can also come um from multiple angles uh, 16 17 different you know accounts can say very similar things about you they all may be from the same person and it's it's impossible. Yeah. So this this is where this is where I've done most of my academic research because I was a bit of a you know canary in the coal mine when it came to online abuse because I very clearly remember when email was invented and we thought it was a great idea to put our email addresses at the bottom of our journalism oh, our yeah. opinion. He published them. and yeah. <laughs> 
And, you know, I'd always got a lot of hate mail just because I I was opinionated and, you know, I was a woman in public also. Um, but it was it was sort of retired naval officers pointing out grammatical errors and yes. you know, accusing me of leading young people astray and so on, uh, which I took as the highest compliment. But um, as soon as the the internet was invented and the email address was there at the column, like literally hundreds and hundreds of rape and death threats every week, like relentlessly for the rest of my time in journalism. And then it went away for a bit when I stopped sort of doing anything in public. And then the moment I started talking about my research in public again, hello, here they are again. And yeah, it does, it looks like it's all written by the same dude. It's clearly not. Um, But I do wonder whether sometimes, you know, with all of this emphasis on everyone being woke and that, that, that some of this stuff has just gone underground mm. and so it might look better on the surface but there's this seething mess of, you know, nastiness underneath still. I, I, I'm always been fascinated by the work of, um, of, of Clementine Ford. I, I've enjoyed reading her, her books. The, the Fire Like a Girl I enjoyed but Boys Will Be Boys was the one that really kicked me in the face as one of four boys and then now as a father of a toddler, listening to her story of like, she had a son and she doesn't want her son to grow up to be the kind of man that will send rape and death threats to someone he doesn't know. Has your, has your research shown any indication as to how the fuck our community ended up with this kind of thing being okay? And some guy who's got a photo of him with his family at SeaWorld having a great time on his Facebook or Twitter page is also the same guy that will DM a stranger uh, uh, a threat that if made to their face would put him in prison. Yeah, so the fact that, you know, a lot of people say, you know, it's anonymity that's the problem. But in fact, as you've just pointed out, and as Clem um, has found out so many times, a lot of people sending this from their open Facebook accounts with pictures of their family, you know, up on their, you know, I'm I'm now off all social media. Uh, I refuse to be part of that scene. But um, in terms of what your question about, you know, what we do in terms of raising boys. Like I think it's the way we raise all kids really, which is that these really rigid stereotypes about what it means to be a boy and what it means to be a a girl are really harmful. Like they are not, they're not based in scientific reality. We are creating, we are creating these two types of people. It's not just that you know, you'd, you'd hear in the playgrounds and so on, like the number of times people go, well, you know what boys are like or you know how little girls are. You know what? No. Like researchers have done amazing experiments showing that when people interact with babies that are dressed to imply a certain um, gender or sex, they behave very differently to those babies. So we are the ones that are creating the boys' are like this and girls are like this. They, we don't appear um, from the the womb or wherever we appear from, um, we don't appear with these, you know, in two types, boys and girls. We make gender. And a lot of the research shows that that's one of the really big underlying drivers of everything from that sort of casual sexism to, you know, really extreme sexual violence. 
I, I would never want to compare sexual violence or, or, or rape or threats or death threats or anything like that. Um, but I'm trying to, I'm trying to draw a parallel to something that I, I do understand. Um, and that's the, the climate denialism space. All right. And that someone yeah. may just believe so strongly in this thing that any presentation of a fact against that is taken as a personal affront and therefore to refute uh, to, ra- rather than change their mind because they're so aligned with their identity being, no, 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 um, climate change isn't real. Um, yeah. They're so aligned with that in their identity then they will vehemently and viciously and personally attack the person presenting the fact because they feel it as a personal attack. That's the only thing I can kind of come close to try to understanding this. Uh, uh, so are you trying to say that the, the, the genders that some people have, have had their, their, their gender identity put upon them to the point where any threat to that they see so personally that they have to defend it as if like it's their last breath. Um, that's part of it. But to even create like part of my um, research, so we, there's a, a general acceptance now that gender is, uh, you know, relatively fluid or, you know, not widespread acceptance, but growing acceptance. But in fact, when you look at the science, this idea of like if we talk about sex, meaning biological characteristics, um, if you look at the science, it's actually not two, to- two, two sexes either. So if we go, okay, we're kind of getting our head around the idea that there could be more than two genders. Um, When it comes down to biological sex and you look at all the markers that we use to go, are you male or female? You start seeing that, you know, on things like hormones, like testosterone, brain chemistry, chromosomes, all of them, what you see is that people are on this spectrum. Um, And so even the notion of, of, biological sex isn't binary like there's a huge percentage of people that um scientifically would be classed as intersex and you know people are very resistant to you know in the perhaps in the same way or similar way to people are resistant to anything to do with climate that doesn't accord with um the beliefs that you know that, that that they feel make them who they are. People really don't like hearing about the fact that it's possible that, you know, not only is gender not a binary, but possibly, you know, scientifically, biological sex isn't a binary either. So, how do we even start to have conversations with with people who, you know, might be trying to figure that out? You know, and, and are initially very resistant and possibly aggressive in their responses when you may talk about, I don't know, there's a kid at, you know, my, my kid's school and Jim showed up, I'm just making up names here, Jim showed up for term two and Jane showed up for term three, same kid. Like how do you begin to have a conversation? How do you even start to have that conversation about essentially, you know, acceptance of this in that little kid's community of their parents or their teachers or their doctors of everyone that, no, 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 this is probably the, the, the easiest path through life. Look, I'm probably the wrong person to ask about how to have productive conversations because I'm pretty bad at those those kinds of conversations. But I certainly, I mean, my 15-year-old identifies as a they-them and has changed their name. I, I'm fine with that. Their school is fine with it. A lot of their friends are preferring a they-them pronoun. I don't know. Like it seems it could be part of that generation's um, rebelliousness or it could be, you know, just making you know sense of things differently. But I think when it comes to talking to people about 
um, views that they're very resistant to or, you know, they have that kind of anaphylactic reaction to. It's like, no, I don't want to hear it. I think that unfortunately it's very hard for us humans to um, to have productive conversations into that difference between views while the internet is working the way it's currently working. And the way the internet, is, the architecture of the internet at the moment is designed to, you know, polarise people, encourage, um, you know, shouting matches, you know, it just happens to support the business model of, you know, social media and most uh, digital platforms. But we're not, as humans, very good at dis- at disagreement and talking to people that have d- very different views and experiences to us. Like it's hard as humans in general, but the internet is making it, I think, almost impossible. There's a polarisation happening. There's, uh, you know, a radicalization happening and that's in every direction it's not just you know like feminists like me are radicalizing as well as the people that we may be arguing with people may not have been realizing that since the 2006 facebook 2009 twitter that the way the algorithms of these uh, platforms work is to promote the most reacted to um, comments and the most reacted to comments are the most um, polarizing, binary, black or white comments. Yet, as humans, that's not how we speak. That's not how we, um, you know, talk. That's not how we debate. That's not how we come to cooperation or moving forward. That's that blows my mind. That people may not have realized this stuff's been happening under our feet. Yeah, it's real boiling frog stuff, right? The, the metaphor of, you know, a, fro- a frog can be swimming around in a, a saucepan full of water that's nice and cold and if you heat it up gradually, it, it won't think to jump out because the temperature's rising slowly and then it's boiling um, and the frog is boiled to death. And I think, unfortunately, something similar is happening with our digital spaces when Mark Zuckerberg was first up at the US Congress and um, I think it was Orrin Hatch, one of the elderly elderly senators, sort of was marvelling, like, how on earth do you make money? People don't pay to use your platform. And Mark Zuckerberg sort of smirked and famously said, we run ads, Senator. And, you know, that that's true, but it's also an incredible simplification of the way that digital business models work, right? Like, this has been pointed out in, in, for instance, in that amazing movie, The Social Dilemma, a couple of years back. Um, as social media users, we're not the customers. You know, we're the pro- we're the like the raw product that is being mined for the customers who are the people that are running the ads on social media or buying the data profiles that these platforms have put together about us and. You know, the best way to keep us on platforms and therefore exposed to as many ads as possible and therefore offering as much of our free data as possible is to offer us content that's engaging. And um, unfortunately, you know, what tends to be most engaging is the, you know, outrage, you know, binary um, positioning, conspiracy theories, uh, you know, all of the 
the things, you know, the, the, our lesser, they appeal to our lesser angels, let's say. How on earth do we combat this, Emma? Well, I think about this day and night at the moment, like it's kind of my next big research project. It's one of those problems where it's going to require um, input at multiple points all at once. Um, as an individual, I've withdrawn my eyeballs and my attention and my data from as many social media platforms as possible. I use a VPN. I, you know, my data is mine. You're not having it for free. And I don't want to see your stupid ads, thanks. And I'd rather go talk to people in the street. Um, since I've been off, off um, social media, and again, I'm really not a very social, I'm not socially adept. I like people, I'm just not very good at them. But since withdrawing from social media, I know so many more of the people in my street. So from a, an individual position, I think that those of us who can afford to withdraw, um, withdraw our attention and our data um, from as, as many uh, digital platforms as possible, and some of us can't afford to do it, but those of us who can, can perhaps look to alternatives, you know, like I use Signal, which is an open source, not-for-profit, encrypted messaging service. Um, so there's there's alternatives coming up, but also our, you know, our governing institutions just aren't keeping up. Um, we've got these sort of medieval institutions and we've got this exponential digital technology and there are a lot of problems with with uh, our governance in lots of ways at the moment, and one of the really big ones is that I don't think our you know the institutions that govern our daily lives are keeping up with the the, the potentially catastrophic threat that emerging um, digital technology poses. Oh my, and my God, we've seen that in the last twenty four hours, haven't we? Oh, I mean. Jesus fucking Christ. We are recording this the day after. There was a, I, I'm not, you know, it was a, someone again live streamed um, a horrendous, horrendous uh, hate crime. Um, and that's, it just, it breaks my heart in a squillion pieces that this is there. And it just, for the people that person was trying to impress, it becomes, you know, this shining beacon for the people that person is trying to uh suppress it you know does the job it keeps people yeah. in the heart it's fucking horrifying and you're right how on earth can a government of any country regulate stuff like that they can't <laughs> jesus christ they can't decide where to put a bike lane in how can they fucking do this yeah but they have to because I researched this area, like I, I play playing around with some of the publicly available AIs, like publicly available AIs that you can very easily use for almost any purpose that you put your mind to. And, you know, the problems that we've seen in the digital space are about to tip over. I mean, we're, we're kind of already in the matrix, we're already in a, in a digital dystopia. And I'm a mad tech nerd. I love technology. I just don't like seeing it being used in the way it's being used and in the completely unregulated way that it's being used. So if you 
let's say, for example, whatever government is in by the time this goes to air and they tap you on the shoulder and say, all right, um, you know, Associate Professor Emma Jane, uh, we'd like to get your guidance on what the regulations should be. Give us your top three. Go. What would you do? Oh, jeez. <laughs> Put me on the spot much, Osha. Um, if we had to start with something, it would be introducing, like having it mandated that platforms like Facebook or Meta have to introduce more friction points to make it harder for people to behave poorly. And Facebook's internal research shows that even adding one click to sharing content, you can still share it, you've just got to click a bit harder, has the potential to reduce the sharing of harmful content dramatically. So that's something we could do straight away. I would also like to see, you know, in the same way that, you know, a tree is worth more dead than alive. I think I want to see, uh, I want to see governments making people pay to harvest and use our data, and I want the equivalent of cigarette warnings um, on some of our social media platforms, so that people are aware that they're using um, technology that has been shown, and again by Facebook's internal research team as well as outsiders that it is really not recommended for teenagers, for people with you know wobbly mental health. Um, these are you know these should come with health warnings. Uh, that's two. Um, maybe you've heard of coded bias and the fact that, um, you know, technology is not neutral. It reflects the biases of the people that build it. Uh, I would like to see um, government um, investment in the technology education space, um, the explicit embedding of the values that we hold dear into our into the building of our technologies so that people are being nudged towards better behaviour rather than what's happening now, which is being nudged towards the worst kind of behaviour. So we're already being nudged, mm. you know. We're already being manipulated. Um, I would just like to see us being nudged in the opposite direction. So there's three. That's three um, am amazing, incredible things. And while I, I doubt those things are going to become policy in the next, you know, couple of years, it's important to hear those from you because that allows us to kind of go, all right, so, you know, an associate professor said that these things would be the best oh. things to try. So I'm going to keep that in mind as I use this tech or hand this tech to my kids. Asha, I think it actually does have the potential to become policy, and this is not just me wishful thinking. This is me working um, with politicians of both major parties and some of the, you know, and the Greens, who are concerned and looking for ways forward. So it's not. I mean, it's it's easy to get disillusioned, and I I feel pretty cynical myself about the I, I really don't like partisan politics I don't like our current system big fan like you of citizen assemblies and deliberate democracies I'm all about it um, very political myself completely anti-partisan political um, but there actually is the the individual level um, of politicians across the parties a desire to have things be different, partly because they're on the receiving end of a lot of horrific abuse. 
I can only imagine. And that's kind of that's kind of interesting that individually the people within the Australian government system all want change, yet they're stifled by the very system itself that is too lumbering, too slow, too almost uh, has a coded bias not to change, which yeah, is kind of interesting. It's a medieval system. Like these are medi- medieval institutions. They were suited to the, you know, just to the industrial age. They are not suited to the digital age at all. I'm still cautiously optimistic that there is a groundswell of, uh, you know, academics and whistleblowers from the big companies um, and people saying this is serious, um, things have got to change. But, again, you know, we look at some of the other big crises of our time, you know, like we look at uh, climate change and so on, it's easy to, to, to look at these big problems and just go, you know, throw up your hands in despair. But, we, well, for, from my perspective, I feel passionately about these things and it's important to me to keep um, lobbying even if it doesn't get anywhere. I'm personally going to go down fighting. The rising and extraordinary, um, it's wild how how quickly the, the very kind of thing that you were talking about was happening in your office in the 90s, you know, print media has yeah transferred into the digital space and uh, women in our community are in extraordinarily creative ways being uh, oppressed and manipulated uh, financially, socially through technology to the point where there's now laws that have had to be passed in our country against um, this sort of thing and being coercively, you know, manipulated online. Where uh, are we with that? What would you like to see, you know, happen in that space around, uh, you know, gender equality? Because that's not just, you know, an anonymous account with a with a ute on it going, yeah, I'm fucking telling you. Yeah. Like it's, you know, actually I, I now have your bank account, you know. Yeah. The minutia of policy is not um, one of my special interests or special skills, but I do think that and have, having sort of tracked different laws that have been passed sort of around the world over the last 10 years, there's been, for my money, an over-focus on bad actors and, and a complete ignoral of, of bad architecture, like the bad architecture of the internet that is supporting um, many of the problems. Like absolutely, if, if someone is like domestic violence and digital abuse have, you know, now go hand in hand. Um, there's a lot of ways that people can, um, you know, extend the sort of violence uh, perpetrated against women offline, um, in, you know, having it into the online space and they, they move together and, you know, f- facilitate each other. But I actually think that when it comes to legislation, you know, if we look at um, the digital spaces being more like the kind of physical spaces that we live in, like we don't keep social control by surveilling everyone and arresting everyone, right? Like we've got all sorts of things in place to, again, nudge the citizens to behave well, you know, whether that's a speed bump, you know, to slow down the cars or a gradual rollout of privileges when you're learning to drive, um, I feel that that passing laws, and this is what's happened in Australia and elsewhere, passing laws that target individual bad actors on the internet, it is important 
you know, no one should get away with those kinds of really, you know, that kind of really bad behaviour. But if we want to see a, a really a, a more holistic, um, broad spectrum type of shift, we need to start thinking about those digital um, spaces the same way we, we think about our physical spaces. And in the same way as you don't like turn 17 or 18 and like, here's the keys to the fastest car on the planet go for it, buddy, go as fast as you like. You know, people have to prove themselves and if they screw up, they have to go back a bit. It seems crazy to me that, you know, and we used to call it the, the information superhighway back in the day. Um, it, it seems crazy to me that people can go into those spaces and have all the privileges, all the rights and no responsibility. There should be something akin to the kinds of fines that we get if we don't, you know, perhaps wear our bike helmet or, you know, we those kinds of, um, you know, infringements that aren't necessarily um, court cases and prison and so on, but, but a lot more, um, a lot more accountability, you know, and a lot more emphasizing the fact that there's a lot of amazing privileges we get with digital technology, but it comes with responsibilities. And if we don't live up to that, then we we shouldn't have the same rights that we had before online. You mentioned before that you you've got a there's a 15 year old that you parent. Um, what kind of what kind of mum are you around iPad time and stuff like that when they were little? Oh, uh, look, I initially I, I was like, oh, you know, it's just another moral panic about technology. It's always been hysteria about new technologies, and so. I was pretty easy going early on, um, and it was also a different digital world back then. Um, although I, did, I remember watching with amusement when when they were like two or three. You know, there was a like hard copy magazine, and they were there with their fingers, a pincer yeah. fingers, trying to make the photo bigger in the hard. I've copy. seen Wolfie do that. Yeah. <laughs> Funny, so funny. And I mean, I get to my house and I'm clicking my car keys at the front door. So like, why isn't it opening? Oh, yeah. It's, it's I, touched a, I touched the page of a book last night on a word I didn't understand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, what am I, oh, God, what am I doing? <laughs> I, I, now, I now make use of, I, I really, I don't know whether to mention the company, but fuck it, it's doing so well. I just, I really like the way that Apple is partly um, making it a point of difference around privacy and security, making it easier for parents to go in and not not have it all or nothing. My kid currently has a lot of limitations, but there's, there's not an absolute ban. Um, but if things get a bit out of hand, then we pull back on, you know, how much screen time is permitted in any given day, but there's, you know, everything goes off at nine, you know, nine, nine thirty if it's a school night. Um, there's h- hard limits on certain platforms. Yeah, it's it's when you put the, as you mentioned, the very architecture of the platforms that um, ha- have exploded, that then this same architecture, which is then been copied, unfortunately, by the news organisations and the same business model is, Absolutely. you know, the most amount of clicks is what gets us money. Go, you know, yeah. and so incendiary headlines and, and shit like that. Um, 
in, com in combination with devices that are actually designed in this wild lab in Stanford that has shown people how to actually hack um, habits and yeah. you know, put, vari <laughs> put variable rewards in and like totally uh, we're unable to put it down. Like there's no way that my brain, my 48-year-old brain can actually compete against this endless stream of perfectly curated things that are being sent towards me because I have spent more than a millisecond on this video than that video. Like yeah. when you put those two things together and then put them in the hands of a 12-year-old at 10 p.m., like of course they can't go to bed. Like it's stupid no. to think they can. <laughs> oh, and I can't either. I have to. I know all this stuff. I, you know, urge surf and impulse surf all the time, meaning, you know, I feel an urge and don't always necessarily think it's a good idea to act on it. But if my phone's next to me when I'm sleeping, if it's in the same room, I'll be reading and then it's like, oh, you know, I wonder what that word means or I wonder what that author's done before and I just, just you know, well, it's not going to hurt. It's just a quick, you know, quick duck, duck, go. And then, you know, two hours later I bought another pair of shoes, you know, like, <laughs> and I feel like shit, like, I constantly have to monitor my own usage because we we are up against really sophisticated AIs that have been designed by persuasive technologists to addict us, and they, they they've done a great job. Um, it's very hard to resist, and that's why it's wherever possible. I try not to be in a in one of those willpower situations, like. The phone goes out. I don't even, it's not up for negotiation. I don't negotiate with terrorists or social media. You know, it's bedtime, the phone goes away. <laughs> it's funny you mentioned the will. I, I don't want to be in a, will, in a willpower moment. This is, I'm 12 years sober now and it's exactly the reason why if back when I could and I, you know, have done it once since COVID, um, check into a hotel, I'll call on the way from the airport or as I'm checking in, I say, can you send someone up to the minibar? I sent up someone to the room and empty the mini bar because I'm not going to drink, but the bandwidth that it takes in my head yeah. to ignore those tiny little bottles of vodka, it means I can't get anything done. And I just yeah. like the whole time. It's like having a radio going, hey, I'm over here. I remember that thing that we used to do. We used to have fucking tons of fun. Forget yeah. about all the bad stuff. Just keep going. I'm over here. Come on. No, no, look up. Look, 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 look. And, but if it's out of the room, it's like, oh, I can read my book. I can call my wife. I can, yeah. you know. <laughs> Yeah, you know, yeah, it's spot on. It's like freeing up the emotional and mental bandwidth. Yeah, I um, mean, not having to be like I, I, I have a someone that also manages a lot of mental health stuff. There's constant, you know, conversations going on under the surface, and constant um, monitoring to wherever possible make decisions that set me up for good decisions further down the track. And well, I've got pretty I don't always it doesn't always work but I've got pretty good at knowing where I get wobbly and trying to make good decisions so that I don't it doesn't get easier to make the bad decision um and you know it's a shame that it, we have to go it's those of us who've had addiction and like severe mental health problems and stuff that do this kind of work whereas anyone would benefit from it <laughs> And you, you're absolutely right. People, I, I talk about it whenever I, you know, when I do speaking gigs, I talk about it all the time. Like the life, the life that I get to live because of the steps I take habitually every day to maintain good mental health means that my life is fucking amazing compared to what it was when I just kind of fell forward into whatever was in front of me. If I'm yeah. deliberate, if I'm deliberate about sleep, eat, exercise, and I'm deliberate about just sending a reminder in my phone because I have to, 
just check, am I okay? What am I noticing? Actually, I'm, I'm a bit anxious. I didn't notice that before. Why? And then just kind of down-regulating a bit and then moving on through the next hour and a bit of my day. Like that shit has changed everything and changed the way I work and the way I am with, with people around me. You, you mentioned uh, mental health and it's a big part of your story. Is it okay if we talk about it? You feel okay talking about it today? Yeah, absolutely. Right. Because it's, it's kind of interesting uh, what happened to you. COVID lockdown was fucked for everybody, like fucking yeah. fucked. I got really lucky in that we had some runway and I was able to very quickly um, get on eBay and buy all the lights and cameras and microphones that I needed so I could keep the podcast going and keep you know, money coming in. Um, but not everybody had that. Not everybody had that. It was really hard for a lot of people and it took extraordinary tolls. As you mentioned, for people who were unprepared um, with no mental health you know, uh, management tools, it, it fucking hit people real hard, particularly if the only down regulation they had available to them was alcohol. And it was fucking hefty. Um, you had a very different lockdown experience to, to others, yeah. didn't you? Well, look, I, I went completely bonkers. Um, and I'm allowed to say bonkers because I am bonkers. Uh, I've been bonkers. I've, yeah, I've, yeah. I've been on enough antipsychotics at the same time to say, yeah. oh, no, I was bonkers. Yeah, I'm a nut job. Um, so I was already a nut job before COVID, um, but the combination of, um, so looking back to 2020, the combination of um, not, you know, I had my academic job and we could, we were teaching, doing everything from home, but, you know, the tertiary sector has crashed and there was a lot of people you know, to no longer have jobs. So there was employment anxiety and we were locked down in the same house for months and months and months. And part of my um, autism gig is I need a lot of alone time. I need a lot of time to recharge and sort of just mull things over. Um, and I just coped and coped and coped and coped until you know, a few months in, my daughter went back to their dad's house. And when I didn't have that responsibility anymore, I just lost it. Like I, I've had a, I've had a good handful of like what they used to call nervous breakdowns. Um, I know it's not a medical term, but I managed to have them anyway from time to time, but had a real crash and, you know, I've, I've dealt with major depression, um, and anxiety and complex PTSD most most of my life. And so I could see that I was in a really bad place. Like, you know, I suicidal ideation is something that I've also dealt with most of my life. And I'm aware of when it starts going from just something in the background to being something I need to take seriously. And it that point I I realized I needed to take it seriously rang one of the helplines and the phone cut out well oh, you know because of t you know telecommunications and stuff and I thought oh fuck it you know I was sick of the conversation I had a friend coming over and um I thought if they're worried about me they can call me back <laughs> and what they did was to um alert the emergency services and so you know 15 minutes after that call, I had three coffers arrive and an ambulance and three paramedics. And I was sectioned, which means to be put um, into a, a psychiatric hospital, whether you want to go or not. 
um, only briefly, like uh, as soon as I spoke to the psychiatric registrar in the hospital I was taken to, she was like, you know, you've got this, you can see that you've got all your supports in place. And, you know, I, I felt like it was an overreaction um, but when I was in the ambulance um, going to, to the hospital, I sort of said to the paramedics, you know, dudes, I'm so sorry for wasting your time. Look, I, I feel like there's other people out there that are going to need you more. And the, I'll never forget the woman said, look, most of the time we get calls to these sorts of jobs. We don't find a person, we find a body. And I thought, wow, like for all of the problems that we've got in our mental health care system, the fact that we have first responders that arrive at the scene and go, fuck it, we'd rather be safe than, you know, safe than sorry, um, you know, I still think, you know, I, I didn't need it, um, but I, I was kind of grateful that, that that's in place. Is that too hardcore, that story? No, like it's, it's a, no, and it, and it it's incredible, and you're you're absolutely right. I lived in North America for about ten years when there there just isn't th that kind of shit. Like if you don't have medical insurance, good luck. Like that we have that in our country is is absolutely incredible, and I'm so grateful that they found you, and I'm so grateful yeah. that that you went. I'm so grateful that you went with them, and just to go, okay, yeah. I'll just I'll just play this out, and if I, if well, I, you, I, I didn't. I I didn't have the choice on that yeah. particular occasion. Like other times, like I have hospitalised myself mm. before. Like when I when I had my daughter, I had pretty severe postnatal depression and I put myself in a psych ward, in a PND unit of a psych ward because I knew I wasn't coping and there was two of us. Can I just quickly qu quickly ask Emma, like for people who, who are listening, they may have never can, you know, they, 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 there's this colossal stigma of picking up the phone going, I've just had a kid, I'm not coping, I need help, yeah. I know what's going on. What for you was the, the the telltale, like the countdown, like a like four, three, two, one, I'm making the call. What for you was the signs like, okay, I know where this is going, I'm going to have to do this? I woke up one Sunday morning and I thought to myself, my daughter would be better if would be much better off if I wasn't alive. And it felt like a rational thought. It felt rational. And there was enough of me, and it's you know still quite I feel quite emotional talking about it, but there was enough of a sliver slither of myself to go, whoa, that is not a rational thought. And, and the moment I, I caught myself thinking that way, I was like, I need, I need help. Um, and I'm the same. Like I, I monitor myself constantly and I've yeah. got my own sorts of red flags. Mm. Um, and if I start thinking like suicidal things or self-harm things or that kind of stuff and it's feeling rational as opposed to, okay, you know, I know that being this is a symptom of depression and it sucks and but it's okay, mm. you know. If I start thinking, you know, that's pretty persuasive thought, you know, there's a maybe it got a point about that. That for me is the moment where I don't fuck around. Yeah. I make the calls. I don't care. I don't care who knows. I don't care how, you know, what stigma is attached. I know that at that moment I need to make the calls and I always make the calls. That is, and it's what you've just, and this is what blows my mind about this sort of stuff, about hearing lived experience. It's so important. You can't be what you can't see. And your upbringing, your 
who you are, what makes you up is so completely different to mine. Yet what you just described, nearly word for word is how I tell people about my experience with suicidal ideation. When those thoughts showed up, it was like, you know what, that's a really fucking good idea. And then, and, and I never knew that. I never knew that it shows up as, oh man, it'll be awesome. Just, it'll be for you, yeah. for them, for everyone. Yeah. Job Makes fucking done. So Everything's going to be fine. Yeah. That's the, ah, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't this, oh my God, I'm gonna, it wasn't a scary thing. And similarly to you, it was like, oh fuck, that's fucking crazy as shit. And I got on the phone. I was really lucky to know. And yeah. I think even just us having this conversation is so important that people can hear this to go, oh, so if it ever shows up to them, they go, let me just check this. Because what? Then if you don't check it, what happens then is you put yourself in the situation we were talking about before, it's you against willpower and you will not win. Yeah, absolutely, Osha. Like it's, I, I feel really strongly, I guess, perhaps like you, about speaking really frankly about this stuff because we don't talk about it. No. Like on the whole, like I've always, this has been one of those autism things that I've always blurted out. Like I have a really struggle when people ask, how are you? Because if I'm like like horrendously depressed and battling suicidal ideation, I say that. Like it's out of my mouth, you know, and it's like a morning tea, you know, at work or something. Like I'm, but, but. It's kind of a blessing in a way because now that I, I've i decided to run with it, like people ask, I tell them, you know, and people will ask, you know, if, 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 if people ask how I am, I tell them. There, there are scientific reasons why we don't talk about suicide publicly and it's important to recognise that, yet there, there it's, it doesn't mean we can't talk about it altogether. You know, don't worry, when I put this episode out, there'll be a big disclaimer at the head and, you yeah. know, there'll be a big tail ender and I'll make sure that there's enough support around it. But it's just us talking about the way those thoughts show up is, is so, so important. When, once you got out of danger, once you find yourself out of danger, Unless I found in my experience, unless I started to address where the source started to come from, it's just going to keep happening again and again and again and again. Yeah. That work is hard. That, that work yeah. is tough. Um, and initially I didn't want to do it. What was it like for you? Did you realise that you had to start looking to where this came from and start to unpack it and maybe, maybe reprocess it a bit? Yeah, look, I've always, I had a really horrific early life, like really horrific, like, um, child sex abuse horrific and one of the weird things and this is something I really like about myself is that from a really young age I started seeking you know help for my mental health like as a kid uh, quite young early in high school I started seeking out counsellors um I don't know what why you know I'm just so grateful that I had that particular urge um along with all the the less lovely urges that I had but I I really have sought counseling all my life sought expert input all my life um it did take me a while to find a therapist you know I auditioned a lot before I found someone that was just like and she's just I've been seeing her on and off for 22 years and I have no plan of stopping. Like I see her on a need to see her basis and sometimes that's twice a week and other times 
you know, six months will go by. Um, but she's got a, you know, it's really, it's, you're in the worst state, right? Like to go therapist shopping if you're in the middle of a crisis. So it's one of those things that I, I always recommend people do ahead of time. It's like auditioning um, antidepressants. You're usually in the worst state possible to be experimenting with medications and therapists when you're in a real ditch. But I now have like a really good solid team of people around me and I've kind of got action stations that I go to when things start to unravel as they inevitably do. Like I expect to be dealing with my particular issues for the rest of my life. Like they, I figure they're sort of on par with, you know, some people have diabetes that they have to deal with all their life. I've got mental health um, conditions that I expect to be managing all my life. Um, but, but it's been, it's, tough work and it's expensive work you know like good therapy is expensive and I you know I wish it was more affordable for more people uh, because you know here uh, psychiatrists or psychologists say a lot you know it's skills not pills like medication is fantastic I've been on antidepressants most of my life they make a difference but then they don't they're not a magic cure yeah, it's it's therapy not. Is hard. That, that's the yeah. heavy lifting, um, and I'm really fucking glad I've done it. Like my life is is still difficult, but it's a lot richer than before. I did all the heavy, hard therapy work. Uh, uh, so extraordinary to hear you speak like that. You've, the way you describe it is, uh, it's it's wild because I I describe it all the time. I describe it all the time. Diabetes, like say you know type one, you're born with it. It's a gene expression that showed up. Nobody's fault. It just fucking happened. Yeah. And you you can have a great life if you manage it. You'll be fine. There's a few yeah. things you can and can't do. And that's okay. And no one's got a problem that you medicate. No problem at all. But if you go, oh, I'm type one diabetic, and now I'm sitting here in front of you eating twelve Krispy Kremes, you'd be like. Ah, makes the people, everyone around yeah. you, if you're not managing it, it, makes everyone around you uncomfortable. But if you're seen to be managing it, no one's got a problem. Off you pop. Um, I'm so sorry that you went through what you went through when you were a kid. I really, really am. Unfortunately, what you went through is not uncommon. Whether it be uh, sexual abuse, whether it be violence, what do we not talk about enough around childhood trauma and adult onset of mental illness? Uh, what we don't talk about enough is the gr what, what grooming involves. So grooming is the uh, the coercive type of brainwashing um, that uh, child sex abusers and pedophiles use to keep their victims um, compliant and silent. And Grace Tame talked a, a bit about it last year, but with the, the book I've just done, I've really gone into it in, in detail because it, it's that psychological manipulation it's very similar to the type of brainwashing that you'd find in you know totalitarian rehabilitation you know rehabilitation center oh it, it, grace tame put it really well and she she said it, it, it's that's the that's what can actually stay with you the longest and fuck you up you know for the longest time and and that's something that's sort of stayed very vivid for me um, even decades and decades and decades later. And it also um, really distorted my memory of what had happened. It didn't, like, block it out or anything, but it, I, I fragmented my memory of what happened so I couldn't really give a cohesive 
um, account of what happened, which is very handy for the abuser. But I also thought it was my fault. Um, I thought I, you know, brought it on myself somehow seven, you know, like, but that's what my abuser told me and, you know, little people believe big people. Um, so I think people don't really understand enough about the, that kind of um, cycle, that sort of brainwashing and coercion and psychological torture that happens and the way that can manifest um, right through the rest of someone's life. Once those those patterns of uh, your perception of input and your relationship with truth and reality um, that are imposed upon a kid in that horrible, horrible situation, even though the situation might have gone, those linger and then can just magnify and amplify and just then suddenly show up way later in life. Um, yeah, we don't we don't talk about that enough. We really. We, we don't talk about it enough, really and there's a, some some of the people who've read that section of the book um, that I've just written have said, you know, oh geez, that was pretty hard going. I was like, oh, really, you know, you should have tried living it. Like, <laughs> and, and what I've given is a very, um, you know, but really compared to the reality, it's a very sanitized version, mm. um, yeah. and it's difficult for people to read. You know, I, I think people need to to become more familiar with what. Because a lot of child abusers abuse in plain sight. They're not the stranger in the car. They're people in our community, in our families. You know, they're often uh, quite charismatic because they've got to be ace manipulators. If they look like pedophiles, they'll get caught. Like, so I think we need to know more about um, those kind of tactics and also the way that kids show um, in nonverbal ways that things aren't you know, some, that something's wrong. Yeah, it's the it's the the real big downfall of this sort of you know sexual abuse coming to light. In I remember, and it was never spoken about, and suddenly it was spoken about in the eighties or so, and suddenly it was stranger danger because it rhymes, but it's not. It's yeah. far and away people oh, yeah. that the kid knows, often people within the kid's family, and the word incest is never used because it's. It's a, it's an uncle. It's a father. It's a, it's yeah. a mother. It's a, you know, it's, and it's so we just we don't want to accept that is the majority of what's going on. We'd rather go. Oh no no, it's the bloke standing by the bus stop. Yeah. I'm calling the cops. It's fucking not. Yeah, it's fucking not. And you know, <laughs> I watch, I watch, you know, like QAnon and all their crazy conspiracy theories about pedophile rings and so on. I know they exist. But that is not the majority of the perpetrators are the people that we hang out with every day, the people that, you know, have our trust, have our kids' trust. Um, it's horrible, but we've got to face that. we just got to face it. Just taking a moment away from my chat with Emma Jane to say that if this show does bring you value, please consider supporting the show. Podcasts are free to listen to, but they're not free to make. And there's plenty of people that help me make this show. You can support us by sharing this show with a friend, by liking and rating and subscribing. Give us a five-star review wherever you can. Share this show with a mate if you can. That always helps. If you want to get an ad-free version of the show, and also there's full video versions of the show, they're available at Patreon. Patreon.com slash Osher is where we are. And thank you very much to everyone that signed up this week. That's really nice. You can always find me on email, send us your email at gmail.com. And thank you so much to everyone that did uh, send me a picture of where they're listening. I love to see a picture of where you're listening to the show. Love it. Tag me on Instagram. 
Bloody great. We're going to play some ads here, and then we'll be right back with Emma Jane. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You speak about being in the autism spectrum. You speak about having been in and out of, in and out of psych wards. For people who are worried that... If their mum or their sister or their dad or their son or their cousin or their lover, um, their boyfriend, girlfriend, goes through one of these things or gets one of these diagnoses, people may think, oh, that's it, they're fucked, their life's over. But here you are with the brain you've got and all the things that have happened to you. You've written 11 books. You have this incredible career. I used to be able to play the, the, the lead break from My Sharona in All Girl Band. And, Mad and a clarinet. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, I can only imagine that at some point you are able to see what is going on with your brain as part of the reason why you have the life you have. Yeah, look, I, I identify as a sweet weirdo and I have for some time now. Like I like, I've run with being weird and nuts. I introduce myself that way. Um, I talk really openly about all of the stuff I deal with, partly because, you know, as weird as it seems to me, in some situations I'm seen as like really functional, <laughs> you know, and, and kind of like I have my shit together and I like to point out, well, you know, in these ways I absolutely do, um, but this is what I have to do to be able to keep functioning. And there's some times where even when I try really do all the things, I might still lose it. I, I, I've reached a point in my life where I kind of, I don't really care what people think of me and I really don't have anything to lose. So I think it's important to to speak openly and to to kind of I want it's absolutely not role modeling but to model what it looks like to to have a mental illness and be responsible and to still um, be able to flourish and thrive as a human because both those things and they're really closely linked like being taking responsibility to the as much as I can um, not being reckless when I know what things tend to tip me, you know, over the edge or make me get really wobbly. I'm, I'm a responsible mentally ill person. And also partly because of all of that work I do, I, a lot of the time I'm really thriving and it doesn't mean I'm happy all the time. Like I'm not, and that's an unrealistic goal for anyone, yeah. but Thanks to lots and lots of annoying mindfulness meditation, I've got a lot better at um, accepting whatever I happen to be going through, you know. So if I'm feeling bored or pissy or impatient, it's like, ah, 
you patients, how my old friends, <laughs> or, you know, feeling like I'm going to cry every second of the day. Oh, yeah, been here before, you know, hello. Like that's um, that's good shit, right, to be able to sit and feel all of the different um, states of being human, and I can't always do it this as I'm describing it, but when I can, life is sweet. And it's not because I'm euphoric or happy, but there is a real peace that comes with um, greeting whatever happens to be arriving, even if it's an unpleasant state. Um, and that's, that's uh, had a profound impact on my quality of life. That's incredible to hear, and I'm 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 so grateful that you were able to describe that uh, experience because for uh, I'm sure for people listening they they may have heard what you've gone through or they may have been through something similar and you know you know that's that's impossible it's a fairy tale what you've just described what what are your thoughts on on a diagnosis is it like is that the be all and end all Look, it's tempting to take a diagnosis as a kind of sentence, you know, or or as part of your identity. Well, this is me now. I've got this. I'm a depressive, whatever. Uh, for me, like having, particularly having looked at the way diagnoses change so much over time. So the DSM-5 is like the psychiatric Bible um, that's got all the definitions of all the mental illnesses. And, you know, if you meet a certain number of criteria and you pass a threshold, you get your diagnosis. Um, I hold diagnoses loosely um, and not just because I've got so damn many of them, for me, a diagnosis is really helpful um, if I can use it as a tool. Um, and so when I've had uh, various diagnoses, it meant, oh, that means I should perhaps try these medications to see if they work. That's really helpful. That, that diagnosis has been really helpful to give me access to those things. With something like um, being diagnosed as being on the autism spectrum, there's no cure for that. But it's a very helpful diagnosis in terms of um, helping me develop some compassion for myself and my weird um, reactions, um, my weird behaviour at times, as well as to encourage other people to potentially be a bit more compassionate by sort of saying, look, sorry about that. I know it was a little odd. Um, it's part of this thing that I deal with. Um, but, you know, like, Again, diagnoses change over time and they're not like, it's not like having a broken bone that a doctor can go and look at and go, yes, it's this. And, you know, we can do this and it will be fixed. With mental health, it's really just clever guessing. And so, yeah, the diagnosis might change. You know, you might get a different diagnosis. You might get more than one. A lot of conditions have a lot of overlaps and it's very hard for people to tell. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's it's definitely worth holding them loosely. And for people who may be the parent or son or daughter of someone who gets a diagnosis like this? Uh, I'd probably say um, that I understand that it can be difficult and confronting and, you know, we all have, we want our kids to live charmed lives and, life doesn't normally work you know, it really doesn't work that way I'm very wary about giving advice because I know that everyone's circumstances are different but I'd certainly um, underline the fact that there are 
incredible support um, options available and the stigma around that I think is reducing. Um, I, I like to cheer people up by pointing to um, famous crazy people, you know, all the brilliant artists and writers and uh, but mainly I I wouldn't be inclined to go, come on, you know, let's look at the bright side. Like it's traumatic to get a diagnosis of anything and if it's your kid, you know, or someone you care about a lot, you'd probably be really worried. Um, I think it's super hard for partners and parents really hard like we 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 talk a a bit about how hard it is to have the mental health problems but fuck it's hard for the people around us like um (laughs) I put my people through hell sometimes like and I really uh part of wanting to be a responsible mentally ill person is because I love my people and I don't want to fuck them over and I don't want to make them suffer any more than they already are and already will suffer when they see me suffering so I guess I would, you know, sympathise that it is, it's tough to be the support person or the parent, you know. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more. And, and to be honest, the person who's done the most work to get me from the hellscape that I was living in to where I am today is my wife. <laughs> it's not me. And I've done fucking heaps of work. Yeah. It's her. Oh, they... <laughs> it's 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 really tough you know like um and and part of I think when I'm talking to other people with particularly if they're having those suicidal thoughts is that the thing that that really has kept me on the straight narrow is that I don't want to hurt my people you know and no matter how bad things get like I've had I've known people who've taken their lives and I've never got over it it's a way of hurting people forever. And even if it feels like, uh, you know, you can't go another day, like I, I hold very strongly to the fact that I love my people. I don't want them to have to, I would never want to hurt them. Um, that's a lot to put on someone if you're already dealing with a mental health crisis, but it's important. You are such a fantastic human being to be honest oh, and I open. Should- and the way that you've written so honestly about it and the way you've shared with me today, um, I, I truly believe this conversation is going to help a lot of people. And I'm just really grateful that you were able to, to be open enough to have it. Thank you so much. Oh, look, my pleasure. And Osha, I, you, you are, you've been a huge inspiration to me in terms of the way that you've um, spoken in your adv- advocacy work. So thank you also, dude. <laughs> That's very sweet of you to say. Um, thank you. I'm all shooks now. Shucks now. <laughs> and let's get some kind of, you know, we need to come up with some kind of hallmark card, you know, sympathy card for the partners of the of the, the, the nut jobs, right? You know, like the. Well, there's, there's Mother's Day, there's Father's Day. We'll come up with a day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll come up with a day. We'll come up with a, the, nut, the, nut cr- the nutcracker day or the nutkeeper day yeah, or something. Yeah. Something the gamekeeper yeah. that well, I can't. We'll think about it. I'll, yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll throw it up on the whiteboard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we'll, we'll add that to our startup, our Osher Pillow startup. Yes. Yeah. Nice. That was Associate Professor Emma Jane, a prolific author, wonderful human, reformed rock and roller, mum, big thinker. <laughs> it's a great chat, right? She's so cool. Her book's brilliant. 
And uh, I really believe, you know, the stuff we were talking about, I really believe in that. And, you know, the, the either you or someone you love might get a diagnosis of, I don't know, some sort of neurodiversity or some sort of acronym like OCD or something like that. You might think, fuck that, my oh, life's over or my kid's never going to get a good job or they're never going to have a proper relationship. It's fucking bullshit. Bullshit. There's plenty of pathways to love and connection and being, a, you know, someone who contributes and helps and is able to be helped and can live a rich, fulfilling life. Just, it's different <laughs> to what we think is normal, but what is normal? There isn't normal. I'm so glad you wrote that book. I'm so glad you came on to chat about it. I know it was tough going in parts, but it's important stuff to talk about. Hope you're okay. If you do need a hand, call your doctor, call Lifeline, 13 11 14 in Australia. Um, that might have brought some stuff up for you, I know that. I talked to Audrey about it after we... Um, Emma and I spoke a few a few days back. So yeah, it's important to have those chats. Just kind of, you know, reflect on it with your partner. Because you may not realise, if you listen to Campbell Walker's conversation a couple of weeks back, I spoke to Campbell Walker, and you may not realise that just hearing someone else talk about childhood sexual abuse may bring something up in you that you haven't realised is there. So it's important to just be aware if anything changes over the next few days for you to understand that it might be going, because it might not have happened to you, it might have happened to a you know, brother or sister or a mate. But it, that stuff still lingers. It's a pretty fucked up thing. But thankfully, there's plenty of pathways out and there's plenty of solutions and plenty of help. And as Emma Jane has simply put to us just then, life can be pretty great if you get about sorting it out and figuring out how to, how to work with it. Thanks heaps for listening. Really appreciate it. Thanks very much to everyone that helped me make the show. Bree Steele on research and support. Toehider, also known as Mike Mills. That's his real name. He's on Twitch. Go check out his Twitch stream. It's super cool. Toehider on Twitch. Andy Ma, who cut the whole show together. And Rachel Barrett, the executive producer of The Lot. I'll see you on Wednesday. Until we speak then, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.